cyber safety, digital misconduct, personal privacy. We'll talk about all that and more on this episode of the Mind Dog TV podcast. Is everybody ready for the Mind Dog the Magnificent Show? Start the clock. And welcome, my friends, to yet another episode of the Mind Dog TV podcast. Technical difficulties all around this morning uh, or today, actually this afternoon. I don't know why I want to call it morning because I'm a little tired. That's why. Um, my guest is having some difficulty connecting. He's in the back end, and I'm not sure if when we bring him in if it's going to work. We were having some trouble with his microphone. It's a conversation I've been looking forward to having for quite some time, and I'm, I'm really hoping we uh, get it in. First, I got to talk about uh, my sponsors, and hopefully we can we can work this out Um uh, I can hear you <laughs> now because I'm on the air and don't have you in. Well, hopefully this is going to work, though. I'm keeping my fingers crossed. And let's just uh, move forward. Let me get these sponsors out of the way really quickly and see if we can get through this. Um, let's start with FunWiseCapital.com today. That's a good one, right? Yeah. Uh, FunWise Capital, business lender matching platform that gets you the best credit lines guaranteed. Apply online in 60 seconds or less, and there's no effect to your credit to see how much you can get. Use the funding for anything you need to start or grow your business. I did say start. Uh, if you don't have a business yet, but you got a solid business plan, and I mean with documentation and marketing plan and all that stuff, they can help you get funding, get the best funding you can qualify for. The strategic lender matching platform searches through hundreds of lenders to find the very best possible option for your unique situation they have hundreds of five-star reviews on google trustpilot and facebook and an a-plus rating with the better business bureau they provide unsecured lines of credit at zero percent for nine to fifteen months unsecured term loans loans based on income short-term gap funding and bridge loans they work with real estate startups like i mentioned franchises restaurants any kind of business any kind of project to get started with them oh we just lost frederick again ah oh, that's a shame now uh to get started with them, uh, you go to apply.funwise.com slash minddog. That's apply.funwise.com slash minddog. And the link will be in the description. Now, I was ready to bring Frederick into the program and introduce him and all that. And then we just lost him again. Uh, really uh, kind of frustrated by the technology today. But uh, while we're waiting, let me go. Uh, talk about another sponsor, yet another sponsor. MyBookie.com is one of the most popular and trusted brands in the online gambling community. Its sportsbook offers an incredible variety of sports from American staples such as football and basketball to international sports such as KBO, rugby, and cricket. It even offers wages on entertainment and politics and simulated sports games such as Madden 21 and NBA 2K21. If you're looking for a line on your favorite TV show, you can most certainly find it at MyBookie.com. MyBookie's casino options are as plentiful as its sports books. There are 27 different table games such as blackjack and roulette and uh, 300 slot options, 77 of which are 3D. You can even play live table games and video poker. To get started with them, go to mybookie.com and use the promo code MINDDOG for a special match do uh, deposit offer. Uh, and I, I apologize for, for saying that very quickly, <laughs> but I want to get my uh, guest in here. Uh, as I mentioned, it's uh, something... Uh, a conversation I've been looking forward to having for a long time. Uh, Frederick Lane is an author, attorney, and expert witness and professional speaker on the legal and cultural implications of emerging technology. After uh, years practicing law, uh, he wrote his first book, uh, Vermont Jury Instructions, with uh, Civil and Criminal, with John Dince and Richard Berger. He launched a computer consulting business that in time led to his current work as a computer uh, forensic expert and author. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, please open your ears, open your minds, and hopefully we'll get to speak uh, with Frederick Lane. Frederick, welcome. Hey, thank you so much. Yes, it works! <laughs> It would be super embarrassing after all of my tech expertise to not be able to get this to work. So. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But this isn't the same kind of thing, anyway. But I, I am, I am thrilled to be able to talk to you about this subject today. Uh, you know, I first saw you. I think it was, I want to say, 
15 years ago or so on, on with John Stewart on, oh, on the yeah. Daily Show. Yeah. And uh, I was prompted to get your book. And I'd like to start there because that book was about um, decency and the government's role in kind of uh, dictating what decency is. Absolutely. It was called The Decency Wars, and it was inspired by the Janet Jackson, Justin Timberlake right. Super Bowl and- halftime show in 2004. And what I was really startled by was the overreaction of the American government to something that lasted literally less than a quarter of a second in terms of broadcast television. Absolutely ludicrous overreaction. And in today, looking back now, it seems so tame uh, at, for what, what it actually was. But, you oh know... This is something I was thinking about the other day because uh, I was scrolling through in, uh, Instagram, and of course, there's all these pictures of scantily clad girls on sure. on Instagram. Yeah. But the one thing you see them blur out the nipples, and I I always always I, what is it that makes the nipple obs- uh, uh, obscene or offensive when you can show the rest of the breast, but it, as long as the nipple is blurred out, like that makes the, the big difference. And meanwhile, everything else can be showing like in a bathing suit that hides absolutely nothing. But it, right. it, you see a little bit of nipple. It's like the end of the world. It, it well, makes right. no it, sense. It makes no sense whatsoever, particularly when you look at the number of shirtless men who are on Instagram and every other <laughs> social media platform. And, and, and I, honestly, I'm sorry. There's no, physical difference between men and women with respect to appearance. So this is all ludicrous. It really is. I mean, believe me, this is not the rant you necessarily want to get me launched on. Because I I think that this these attitudes towards the body and towards sexuality do tremendous damage to kids in terms of body image development, all the rest of it. And it contributes to many of the cyber traps that I write about. Uh, I want to get to all that stuff, and hopefully we'll have time to. And one of my frustrations with you is when you when I see you on for eight minutes or six minutes with some of these things on TV, they don't really get the full story, and you're not permitted right. to talk. So I'm going to try to keep these my part of this <laughs> as limited as possible and let you actually talk. Uh, but my guest tonight is a porn addiction guy, and and his focus ah, is the yeah. damage that pornography is doing to the American society. Now, I, I think you would agree that uh, pornography is kind of uh, not a, a you know, and the unlimited uh, or free use of it by anybody at any age through the internet is a not a good thing for society. But I know your position, and I tend to agree with that, is that we don't want the government dictating what's decency. Where's the line? Well, <laughs> You know, that this is the thing. I mean, we have a First Amendment, right? So obviously, um, the line is really up to obscenity, which is a specific legal standard. And anything short of obscenity is permitted under the First Amendment. I, I will tell you, as someone who, you know, you remember my first book was Obscene Profits back in 2000, which was about the rise of the online adult industry. So I've been studying the impact of the adult industry on society for the better part of two decades now, actually a little bit more. And one of the things I think that we don't appreciate fully is that we're basically running a sociological experiment on our children now in terms of what is the impact of basically unlimited access to adult materials. And honestly, you know, Matt, we're we're not talking about Playboy, right? We're not talking about some cheesecake photos. We're talking about the hardest material that you would have had to go basically to a foreign country to get 30, 40 years ago. And now it's on every cell phone. It's on every smartphone, every laptop. Kids are getting access to this material in elementary school. And we don't know yet what the impact is. We do know that because of the way that the online adult industry has evolved, that kids are are getting a, a, a sexual education, if you will, that is wildly incompatible with an actual human relationship. And so, <laughs> and so I would say to you that we have created a terrible default situation in which the primary provider of sexual education in this country 
is the online adult industry. And right. I, look, I made friends when I was researching obscene profits. There are quite honestly good, decent people whose job happens to be producing adult content. But when you look at the industry as a whole and the way that the industry has evolved over the last 25 years, it's not good in terms of the message that is being provided to its main viewers who are overwhelmingly young men. Right. And, and it is, in fact, really, I think, warping relationships. Um, I'm actually working on two new books that hopefully we'll have a chance to talk about in a couple of years. One of them is The Rise of the Digital Mob, which will be out next year. But the one that I'm doing after that is hashtag tech-sick masculinity. So not toxic, but tech-sick. And my yeah. argument is going to be that technology is having a disproportionate impact on men and maleness. And we need to understand what those impacts are in order to have a, a better society. So, well, I would love to have you back just to talk about that. That's something I have brought up yeah. in recent episodes with a lot of different people. And uh, it, a lot of people are not really prepared for that conversation, but I agree with you. And I see it wholeheartedly in, you know, just the other day, you know, Twitter was on fire about, I guess, and I'm not even sure what, what caused it, but some modeling some photo shoot where guys were wearing clothes that some Candace Owens or some very right wing person thought was effeminate and saying, you know, this is, you know, these are not real men. And Twitter went on fire about that, about, you know, the, what, the where pop, is masculinity? <laughs> well, the pop star Harry Styles did a photo shoot for GQ and the cover photo is him wearing a dress. Wow. Okay. And that's what set everything off. And, and yeah, I've been following that specifically because of my interest in how are definitions of masculinity evolving. And I will tell you, in the era of a pandemic, if that's the kind of thing we're worried about, we're really screwed up. <laughs> we have bigger issues to concern ourselves with than you know, whether or not some pop star that I honestly had to look up because I'm of an age, but <laughs> whether some pop star is wearing a frock you know, for a photo shoot, who cares? At the right. end of the day, you know, let's get real about the serious issues we're facing. Have you seen our founding fathers? <laughs> there were a lot of frills back then, weren't yeah. there? <laughs> yeah, and they, they they wore what looked to me like dresses or, or very feminine-looking clothing at the time, you know. I, sure. And so things change, morals change. But yeah. I, I, back on the pornography thing, just for a minute, I remember during the 70s there was a... Uh, when it was hotly contested about what could be shown in movie theaters and yeah. uh, X-rated stuff, and some judge, and I don't recall who it was, said that I don't, I can't define pornography, but I know it when I see it. Well, that is the the, the key issue to what when you're talking about obscene. If we can't really uh, agree to a complete uh, definition of what's obscene, so you might think modern pornography is obscene and i would probably agree with you uh but <laughs> other people other people might think like glorified killing in some video games where like um what what like american gangster or whatever the uh, other one was that you know it's just like glorified killing just you know going out killing innocent people is yeah. part is part of a game some people might yeah. classify that as obscene so without that really definition that, and we can't even agree on like the simple things, simple realities that whether it's day or night in some cases, uh, how can how can we ever solve that without having a real agreement on what is obscene and what's not? Well, I you know look, this is honestly Matt, this is the beauty of the First Amendment, right? Because the point of the First Amendment is it treats us all as adults in terms of the media that we consume, and the point is that we don't want a governmental agency trying to tell us what is or is not obscene. Now, I, I agree with you. There are definitely things that are online right now that any rational person should classify as obscene. Like, we don't need Potter Stewart, who, by the way, that was Justice Potter Stewart back okay. in 1970, 71, in a case called Jacob Ellis versus Ohio, who said, I may not be able to define obscenity, but I sure as heck know it when I see it. And, and he was right. You know, there's some intrinsic reaction we all have to something that is just wrong. Now, my personal opinion, and this is just that, 
is that I think that violence tends to be more obscene and more destructive than sexuality. But that's only true if we're providing our children with the context to understand what they're seeing. And we're not doing that right now. So we need to work on all of these issues. And we need to be prepared to have these difficult conversations about the media that's in the world. And we need to be talking to our kids much sooner than we really want to. That's right. the takeaway from all of this. Yeah, and yeah, I, I would agree with you that sexuality probably wouldn't be that damaging if it was healthy sexuality. But as you yes. pointed out before, some of the things that they're doing—it's like what Mick Jagger said: you got to keep when you want to shock them, you got to you got to keep upping the, the the shock game continuously. And so yes. where we we've yeah. gone from 1970 to now in the in the pornography world, it's just like way over. Like things like yes. a a normal person would never imagine doing to their, their spouse or a lover or whatever. And they, they glorify that in a lot of ways. It's unhealthy. I want to, um, I agree. <laughs> um, a friend and a friend of mine who was a, a local entertainer uh, about three years ago now, um, was arrested, uh, for child pornography on mm. his computer. They raided his home, uh, and arrested him. Big story, put it on the news. They, uh, and the, the news, basically uh, put his picture on the paper uh, on the cover of news 12 and uh, and uh, you know Newsday and all these things yep. and yep. they came out with these allegations as they were fact uh, and forgetting about mm. uh, innocent until proven guilty and everybody condemned them. everybody in, in my you know in the entertainment industry everybody who knew him condemned them and you know he must be guilty and all this and I was the only one to say well let this play out. I have questions here. Like, uh, and there's all these questions about that. You know, they must have been watching him. Where is the um, uh, legal and ethical uh, th things about entrapment? And if they knew this stuff was online, why didn't they go after the people that were putting it out before they went after him? But then, mm -hmm. as the case played out, uh, nothing happened to him. Uh, that case is over with. Uh, he didn't chase any jail time. As far as I know, he didn't even get a fine. So uh, I'm not per, uh, uh, privy to the actual case results. I haven't spoken to him in three years because he's been outcasted. His life has been completely ruined. Nobody knows, but uh, I would think if he was guilty, he would he would have faced some uh, re repercussions from that, whether it's, you know, failed Pro, uh, probation or jail time or anything like that. You didn't get any of that. So that that kind of makes me wonder. But the question is, um, you know, you what your I know your stuff is about cyber traps right now. The stuff you're writing about now and that kind of stuff. Child pornography exists, but they go after the the users, which I'm not, you know, condoning the use of it. But right. uh, they, why aren't why aren't they going after the suppliers? No, they're trying to, but it's it, it's a ferociously complicated problem. Let me give you a little bit of background. Um, when I, I got out of law school in 1988, and I spent two years clerking for a federal judge in Springfield, Massachusetts. And when I was there, um, there were several cases involving child pornography that were investigated by the postal inspectors because the U.S. Post Office was at the forefront of trying to stamp out the distribution of child pornography. Because back then, of course, it was all done in paper catalogs and magazines and you know VHS tapes. You remember some of this older technology. Um, and the thing is that um, they were doing really well in the late 80s to wipe this stuff out. And it was really vile. And then what happened? We got digital cameras, we got scanners, all of this new technology came along and it became possible not only to produce this material without anybody seeing it, but then with personal computers, you remember bulletin board systems, uh, then you get into Usenet and then you get into the web. These technologies allowed the distribution to take place globally. And all of a sudden now, it was incredibly hard to track down the people actually producing this stuff. And you know, for the last 20 plus years, I've been doing computer forensics, and I actually work with a lot of criminal defense attorneys. You know, presumably like uh, the guy that you were talking about. You know, his attorney. And the the thing is that 
law enforcement has very sophisticated tools for identifying people who are downloading content from the internet. And all of the tech companies use a system developed by the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children to send out alerts to law enforcement of potential downloads within their jurisdiction. That piece of it is relatively simple to do. So if someone is using a peer-to-peer -peer system uh, like you know, LimeWire used to exist or FrostWire or now BitTorrent, things like that, um, it is possible for law enforcement to identify potential contraband that's flowing across those systems. That is much, much easier to do than to actually identify who's putting it out there in the first place. And typically when they do identify someone, it's someone in a foreign jurisdiction. And we don't, as the United States, we don't necessarily have the best legal uh, relationships with some of these places. Like if they're shipping stuff out of Russia, Matt, you know we're not gonna go in there, you know, guns blazing to, to lock these people up. Or, you know, the same could be true for Yugoslavia or Hungary or wherever. So the international capability to create and distribute this material is an ongoing problem for law enforcement. And I'm not even talking yet about Southeast Asia, which is a whole nother, you know, kettle of fish in terms of the production and so forth. As a matter of fact, for the research files that I maintain, um, I just flagged a case of a guy who was um, using the dark web to solicit poor families in the Philippines to produce child abuse videos for him. And he was paying them like minuscule amounts of money. But, you know, they're so desperate in some of these countries that they're willing to, um, they're willing to go along with this kind of thing. And it's, 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 a, it's a perpetual challenge for international law enforcement and, and really is something that our State Department should be working on as well. Right. Well, well, as you was were talking to that, kind of dawned on me. I, I'm a little slow, but uh, I, I think I started to get it when you said, you know, by the time they they even find the, if they can find that guy in Russia or whatever other country that mm -hmm. might have uh, originally posted that stuff, a lot of perverts have grabbed it and shared it around in so many different oh, ways already. Right. So it's almost impossible, and it doesn't matter that you're gonna go find that. It's waste a lot of resources to find some guy hiding in a cave in Pakistan or something when when <laughs> there are people all over the United States sharing it with their fellow perverts. Uh, it, so, yeah. Right, right. <laughs> and, and, and logistically, to be fair to law enforcement, it's a lot easier to drive down 495 and arrest mm -hmm. some guy than it is to fly to the back you know, mountains of Pakistan <laughs> and, <laughs> and try to track someone down there. So, you know, look, we, we, we have very serious problems and child abuse and international sex trafficking is absolutely one of them. And, you know, I, I utterly support the efforts of law enforcement to develop more sophisticated tools. You raise a very good point, though, in that even where the evidence seems open and shut, you still need to let the process roll out and there still needs to be a presumption of innocence because otherwise, you know, the the fundamental legal system collapses. Yeah, and with that guy, I, I don't know that he was in, innocent, but uh, I liked him, and, and I still like him, and and I, I, you know, I talk to him once in a while. He'll he'll text me and just to let me know he hasn't killed himself, but his life has been ruined, and. Yeah. Um, he hasn't gone to jail for it, and I would think that he, he would have. And uh, like I said, I don't know he's innocent, but if somebody is falsely accused of that, their life is ruined, and they can't go anywhere to get their life no. back. When News 12 and Newsday plastered him all over uh, before he was even even had his day in court and said he had you know pictures of two-year-olds on his computer yeah. uh, in right. sexual positions and stuff. So people wanted to kill him. And 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 a lot and not that's not just figuratively that you know they want literally wanted to kill him, and and so uh, where do you go to get your life back? And that's a dangerous thing. And so where where does the press have any kind of responsibility when in that? Uh, because well, law enforcement will tell them the specifics of the case, but aren't they under some kind of um, legal uh, requirement to say these are what's alleged? Not this is what happened. 
Yeah, I mean, absolutely. There, there's an ethic. There's a journalistic ethical obligation to report that something is an allegation, not an actual fact, right? right. And that the presumption of innocence still applies, and so on and so forth. Um, you know, I, I can't speak to the specific stories because I haven't read them, but you know, yeah, that that kind of mistake does get made, and it can be very destructive. To be fair to the journalists. Um, the reaction might well have been the same, e even if they made it absolutely clear that they were allegations, because you know a lot of readers treat allegations as facts. Right, so and it, it's big to put that, that stuff on on the, on the front page and stuff, and make it like because it sells, and that and, and that yeah. anger, anything that can get people angry and emotional will help you sell stuff, and that's right. that comes yeah. back to to your one of your first books, the the one about decency. Is that the reason it's a big issue? Is because uh, people get angry and emotional over over these kind of things. Well, uh, it's also the rise of the digital mob because anger and confrontation and controversy all drive engagement. And you right. know as well as anybody else that in order to survive in this new digital landscape, you need eyeballs. And that's one of the ways you get eyeballs is to have controversial kind of outrageous topics. So, right, absolutely. Yeah. So yeah. n now you've uh, you got like a series, I guess I would call it, about cyber traps because you have yes. one yes. one for that's just cyber traps, and then another one for educators, and another one for expecting parents, and cyber traps yeah. 2.0. Uh, explain to me uh, what what first of all, what is a cyber trap? <laughs> um, uh, that's a great question. A cyber trap is an unintended or an undesired consequence arising from the use or misuse of digital devices and online media. Right. So classic example of that is if you say something really mean about your boss at work and you're sending it in a message to one of your coworkers, but you accidentally send it to the whole company, that's yeah. a cyber trap. <laughs> okay. Uh, the issue of protecting children from things that you don't uh, want them to necessarily have access to um sure, kids, are, sure. kids are smarter than their parents though when it comes to this stuff so <laughs> uh well, that... they're, more, they're more skillful i mean look I, I talk to parents groups a fair amount and what i try to remind parents is kids may have the technical expertise but they don't have the wisdom and they don't have the experience to understand what they're doing and that's right. that's a huge advantage for parents they need to remind themselves that, yeah, the kids may know how to manipulate the devices, but the parents know what the consequences might right. be. Right. Yeah. Well, the one you just brought up uh, about, you know, the employee who who was wanted to write something angry about their boss, thought, thought they were sending it to one person. My wife, I just found out uh, about a week ago, two weeks ago, didn't understand what BCC meant and uh -oh. and the fact. Right. And so, and so you, I think I think she's not. You know, she's not um, that. Um, unique in that I think there are a lot yeah, of people yeah. out there who don't understand that there could be people seeing this email and when you hit reply all uh, a lot of people you might not intend to uh, see right. this your reply will see it um, sure yeah yeah well you know with with cyber the first book I did was cyber traps for the young right which was back in 2011 and that was really helping parents understand what the potential legal trouble kids could be getting into because of the devices, right? All of a sudden now you've got the potential for cyber bullying, cyber harassment. You've got the whole sexting phenomenon, which is actually the production of child pornography, right? right. And that brings us back to our earlier conversation. A lot of parents don't realize that if their kid takes a naked photo of themselves, they've produced child pornography. Wow. And if they then send it to someone else, they've distributed it that person's in possession, so on and so forth. So that was the original concept of cyber traps to begin with. In 2015, I wrote um, Cyber Traps for Educators, and version 2.0 is the one you're talking about that just came out. But at the same time that that book came out, an organization I'm involved with released a model code of ethics for educators, and one whole section of that deals with technology. And there's actually an ethical obligation that they're proposing 
that teachers understand how the technology works before they use it. And so, you know, that, that if you're using technology and you don't really understand what you're doing, then the potential for cyber traps like the BCC is significant. Right. And uh, what we see a proliferation of um, new apps like coming out uh, on a regular basis that are aimed. Uh, and I, I bring this up a lot. Social media being what it is, I think MySpace was developed and kids were all over MySpace. And then old people, boomers started getting on it and the kids needed a way to get away from the boomers. So they invented uh, Facebook for younger people, college students. And then the boomers found their way there. And then those people found their way, came up with a new thing. And it's constantly a, uh, it's it's aimed against young people, but it's a constant battle to keep away from the adults almost as if uh you know we have secrets going on that we don't want we don't want old people to spoil it and so they keep coming out with new things and so what's a parent to do you know other than take a phone away from a kid or take a laptop away from a kid what can they possibly do to really prevent a kid from getting in trouble yeah, I mean, look, let's be absolutely clear. There's no complete guarantee, right, Matt? Because kids are going <laughs> to yeah. experiment. They're going right. to make mistakes. That's absolutely true. The The goal, I think, for parents is to create an environment in which they can discuss potential consequences and hand off some of their wisdom and experience in a non-confrontational way. So um, I did a, a book that sort of spun out of the cyber traps called Raising Cyber Ethical Kids. Um, you know, all of this stuff is available on Amazon. But the idea of the Raising Cyber Ethical Kids is to encourage conversations at each level of development so that parents have some understanding of what their kids are doing. And I think actually from a practical point of view, one of the most effective things that parents can do is to ask their kids basically to become teachers in the sense of if they see their kids using a certain app, quite literally say to the kid, I'd like to try that out. Can you show me how to use it? Right. And let them teach you. And I, I will say that that the idea, except in the most extreme circumstances, the idea of, of pulling away devices is really hard because you know, God, in in this era of remote learning, right? Kids need their devices to do homework and all of the rest of that. Um, There's a lot of different socialization that takes place and so on and so forth. So as a practical matter, that's not a great solution. But one thing I think parents should insist on is that until the child amply demonstrates their responsibility, parents should have the ID and login information for every service the child uses. Right. Because parents need to remember that unless the kid has actually bought the phone and is paying for the data plan, parents are on the hook, you know, in terms of potential harm that arises from the child's use of that device. So you've got a legal responsibility to be aware of what your child is doing. And then of course, beyond that, you've got a moral slash parental responsibility to help them understand the consequences of their actions. Interesting so, stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's, it's really, it's an important thing to keep in mind. Have there been any cases that you're aware of where a parent has been prosecuted for something a teenager might have done with a digital device? Not prosecuted because it's, you're not gonna get the criminal liability, but you, there have been cases where parents have been sued because they were aware that their child was bullying, for instance, and they didn't take any steps to stop it. Well, I was thinking more along the lines that what you mentioned before, a kid could uh, send a sexting picture to to somebody, and that's actually, it hadn't even occurred to me, you know, you can be a child pornographer of yourself. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, no. Most people don't think about that. There's, there's, you know, it's, it sounds a little bit like a joke, but it really isn't that um, the federal child pornography statute has no selfie exception. Right. right. Wow. Well, and, and honestly, Matt, this is a huge problem, right? Because, you know, putting aside the guy in the cave in Pakistan, right, who's producing 
child pornography. Poor Pakistanis. I don't mean to pick on them per se, <laughs> but you know what I'm saying. Just yes. kind of way outside of the U.S. jurisdiction. I will say to you that law enforcement is grappling with the fact that every single minute of every single day, children are creating child pornography that gets out into the world. So it's mm. not just creepy adults who are contributing to the problem. It's hormone-ridden teens and preteens right. who are taking these photos. And sometimes they distribute them themselves, but then a lot of the time they they think that they're in a relationship, right? And this is part of the you know, playing doctor. This is the high-tech version of playing doctor. I'll show you mine if you show me yours. But those photos never stay on the device that they're sent to. I mean, kids break up all the time. Even if they don't break up, it's natural for them to be passed around. There are dozens of cases in my research files in which, you know, the FBI has gone into a high school and basically discovered that, you know, nude photographs are being traded like baseball cards wow. around the school. And then those things wind up in, in Dropbox folders. They get uploaded to the web. It's a mess. Yeah. And, you know, again, getting back to our earlier conversation, if we were less freaked out about conversations about the body and about sexuality and so forth, the, the um, disruptive impact of these images would be much lower, right. Right? right? We wouldn't care. But the problem is because we've got this very uh, sort of religiously driven attitude about the body and about sexuality, these images retain a power that can be destructive, which right. is why you get bullying of kids. It's why you get uh, suicidal ideation on the part of girls whose photos get distributed. Um, boys, too, to be fair, but but typically more girls than boys. Uh, you know, it's a complicated mess. And, you know, from a parental point of view, you know, there's, you know, there's nothing you're going to do to stop a kid from taking a photo if they're curious or if they're getting peer pressure. I mean, it's it's hard to have 100% success on that. But I think starting as young as possible to talk to children about, about the privacy of their body and control over images of their body and of their information, right? So not necessarily focusing on the, the sexuality piece, but focusing on the control over the choice of what gets shared and what doesn't get shared. Right. And and these are the conversations held over a period of months or years that can really help children make better decisions, which is right. what we want them to do. Well, so much of this conversation so far has been rightly or wrongly based on sexual stuff, and it, it all comes back to that in one yeah, way or form sure. eventually. Um, but... There are other problems. You mentioned cyberbullying is a huge one. Where is the line with that? Because Twitter seems to be out of control, and they will ban people for things or suspend them for insults sometimes. And you wonder, like, where is where is the actual line where it becomes cyberbullying? Because we and we don't see this just with teens. It's, it's adults. People sure. in professional positions, the president of the United States is a cyber bully. Uh, yeah. So uh, yeah. where, what actually defines now where we can draw that line and where, because it seems arbitrary. It's just, as much, just the same as the sexual obscenity thing. Mm -hmm. it, it's in yeah. the eye of the beholder sometimes. Well, it's it's in the it's in the the it's in the eye and it's in the emotions of the recipient, right? right. I mean, that's that's the thing and. You know, we, you know, I think honestly, and, and this is a, a little bit of a philosophical point of view, but we have lost some of the structures in our society that would have helped us deal with this kind of situation. Um, you know, I'm, we're a much less religious society than we used to be. Uh, a lot of our community activities are um, either weaker or more polarized than they used to be. Um, one, the, this book that I'm working on, The Rise of the Digital Mob, is is about the impact that electronic communications has had on how we interact with each other. This is literally the issue. Right. What has happened to us that that so much of our conversation 
feels like bullying. <laughs> and yes, look, I, I, I have very, very clear opinions about the role that Trump has played in this situation, but he's not the only source oh, no, of the no, problem right. by, by any long stretch. Um, he's, he's a particularly high-profile example. But at the end of the day, and I'll keep saying this over and over again, we're all individually responsible for how we treat the people we interact with in the world. And I think we need to get back to a more kind of small R religious, small C Christian, right. uh, small M Muslim approach to the world where we're taking the values of these principles, you know, that we're taking these guidelines for living and we're incorporating them into our daily lives right. so that we are the, we can only be responsible for our own behavior at the end of the day. We can yeah. advocate for other people to change their behavior, but each one of us, if we're not happy with how the world is functioning, each one of us needs to be that better person. And then collectively, maybe we make some progress. And of course, as parents and, and my wife and I, you know, we take a little bit of pride in this. We were really uh, clear, let's say, with our four boys about how we expected them to behave. Right. And, you know, with occasional exceptions over the years, we're generally pretty happy with how they interact with people. Congratulations. And, you know, we take some... <laughs> We, we pat ourselves on the back because they they've all been in these great relationships with strong, um, you know, independently minded women, and we right. just take that you know. I don't care whether it's independently minded women or guys, but they happen to be you know women. But, but they they they're in relationships with strong people, right? And right. and that seems like a sign of respect. And and I think that at the end of the day, we want to try to make sure that we're making the world a little bit better right. one person at a time <laughs> well well um i i agree with you on a lot of what you just said the one thing i would probably uh disagree on is the, the religion part of my wife is in a religious group and okay. uh, they are bullying uh, more bullying going on in heavily religious yeah. groups uh, and i think social media for uh, people say well social media has had some positive influence but uh, for i think the negative uh, influence outweighs uh, yeah. the positive hugely if i might borrow that word from from huge uh, from bernie <laughs> yeah uh, but i think and and we, we see adults becoming children in a lot of ways, immature behavior. Yes. And the one thing that when it comes to cyberbullying, it's almost, and I, I agree with you, Trump is not responsible for everything that goes on. And it got really, really ugly in the last four or five years online. But the thing yeah. that most, the, the, the ridiculous excuse people uh, fall back on for this behavior is, well, he started it. Like that, yeah. you can't get any more adult, not even adolescent, childish. Uh, you know, grade <laughs> school. Uh, he started. He threw the first punch. You know, why are you fighting? He started it. That's the excuse. And so you see, Twitter is. Uh, you know, Twitter is uglier. The ugliest, in my view. Uh, probably maybe reflective of the people I follow and listen to. But uh, <laughs> you, you see, you yeah. see people, adults, attorneys, politicians, people, elected officials. Uh, preachers, Mike Huckabee, calling a guy a doo-doo face. I know. I know. <laughs> Look, you had a debate four years ago where the Republican candidates were arguing about hand size right. on national television. And I mean, I'm sorry, but that was a real low moment in American history. It really, right. it was just sad. Look, I, I'll tell you, I'm, I'm, I'm the classic secular humanist, right? I'm agnostic. Um, I don't know what is out there. I'm not entirely sure, but I do think that the the fundamental, if you will, the fundamental goal of religion is to have us treat each other better. Right. That to me seems like I don't care what label or brand or what team you play for when it comes to religion. I think that the question is, how are we dealing with each other on a personal one to one basis? And beyond that, are we working to make the world better or not?
Right. I would agree with you 100% on that. And I think what I'm seeing, though, is that uh, not even an organized religion. I'm talking about people who just you know, wear the label of whatever religion they, yeah. they belong to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the yeah. disease of cyberbullying has uh, infected uh, most faiths, especially when it comes to their interaction on social media. I, and, uh, you know, somebody said to me the other day, and I thought, what a, what a great way if we could actually do this, is uh, get off social media and, and look each other in the eye and, and, and have a one-on-one conversation, which doesn't happen much more. Uh, and I know people who won't, won't pick up the phone and I'll call them. They won't pick up the phone. They'll text me back. And it's like, well, what, what can yeah. we just talk? But back to religion now, cause I want to, I want to uh, touch base on this. One of your books, one of your early books had to do with uh, uh, what is it? The constitution and the cross or something like that. Right. Uh, the court, court and the cross. Court and the cross. Yeah. Uh, I think most people, when we talk about the framers of the constitution, and I'll see if you agree with me, uh, freedom of religion was never meant uh, to be um, used as the religion should be part uh, of, of our government it meant uh the government shouldn't touch it shouldn't be influencing what religion you are a part of now we've taken it as it's a role of the government to almost kind of uh enforce religious and they they bring up the words uh well judeo-christian values a lot when talking Mm -hmm. about this stuff there's no role for that in government is there no no i my my very strong opinion is absolutely not and and you know there's two clauses in the first amendment one is that the government shall not establish a religion, which means that it will not prefer one religion over another. And then there's the freedom of religion clause, which basically says the government will not interfere with your religious beliefs. So those two things, and they're really directed at the government. And where we're starting to see a lot of controversy right now is that Um, particularly uh, evangelical Christians are arguing that any law that requires the equal treatment of individuals who walk, for instance, into a business is an infringement on the right of a evangelical business owner to discriminate against certain people. And, you know, the, the question that is constantly being raised is, if you are a public business, if you make wedding cakes for everybody, or you say you make wedding cakes for everybody, and a gay couple comes in and says, I would like to order a wedding cake, do your religious beliefs allow you to refuse that customer your product? And they argue that if the government makes them, quote unquote, make the cake for Steve and Larry, that that's somehow an infringement on their religion. And, you know, I, I, we don't have time to delve into all of the aspects of that, but I will say that the government is not saying that they can't be evangelical. It's a business transaction. And they're simply saying, if you're open to everybody, you're open to everybody, end of story. Well, and if you don't want to interact with people who are gay, well, don't have them as your friends. But that's not business. That is a a, a very sticky widget, as they say, because I am all for uh, I'm I'm not against gay people, and I would hope that Baker would make the cake. But when I grew up, there used to be signs on every local store. We ref- we have the right to refuse any anybody's service for any reason whatsoever, and no shirt, no shoes, whatever. We don't want we don't want to serve you. We don't have to. And I, as a business owner, if I put myself in that position, somebody saying I yeah. have to, and Hatred is a bad thing, but if I hate somebody, I shouldn't have to have to do business with them, being forced to do it by the government. So that's a sticky widget because I don't know where that goes. But and I hate to bash one party over the other, but the same party that makes that uh, um, argument that the baker shouldn't have to um, serve uh, a gay couple if they don't if they don't want to, they're arguing now that Twitter should have to uh, give give. Uh, publication space to people who who violate their rules uh, uh, so that's inconsistent in my view there, there, there's a there, you know believe me 
no political party has the you know has cornered the market on hypocrisy everybody's got issues you know that they need to pay attention to i i hear what you're saying and i think that it's you know it it's one of these things like if you're if you're a plumber and some person has stiffed you right there's no requirement that you have to go back and do more work for that person if you can't collect from them in the first place right it's a little bit different than the situation where you've got a storefront that anybody can walk into and assuming that they're willing to pay whatever you're asking for your service you know then the question becomes are you know what a what are the criteria that you're using to deny service uh, obviously and if, yeah. if you were doing it because somebody was black i think everybody would agree that that's discrimination Right. I actually, the sad thing is, I'm not sure that's true, honestly. Yeah, maybe um, maybe I spoke too soon on that. Yeah, uh, this this world is not. <laughs> <laughs> so, was that case ever resolved? Though the, the the baker with the gay couple. I, you know, I would have to look that up real quickly. I forget. Let me see real if I can. Uh, cake baking decision. Um, <laughs> I'm just doing a quick look here. Um, Basically, they uh, there was a very narrow decision that um, basically gave the um, baker um, some leeway in order to let's see the the no I'm sorry the Colorado Commission said that its regulations did not employ uh, religious neutrality um, thereby violating the owner's right to free exercise. Um, there are broader issues that need to be dealt with. So basically, I guess the answer would be that the court punted on this a little bit. Yeah, and um, so and, it's going to go so up. <laughs> it'll, it'll go back up at some point, right. There'll be other, because these kinds of, uh, you know, in, in conservative parts of the country, obviously, these kinds of service businesses are asked all the time because, of course, gay marriage is now legal in all 50 states. So you're going to have couples in very conservative areas trying to get married. So yeah, the, the, this, this intersection of law and religion and First Amendment rights is not resolved yet. It, right. There'll still right. be more about this. But I think getting back to the book that I wrote now, which is interesting, This Court and the Cross, is that at some point, I should really revisit that because it was written before the recent change in the personnel in the Supreme Court. And I think if I added an addendum to that book, you know, the conclusion would be that, in fact, the crusade to reshape the Supreme Court has occurred, that they right. won, you know. And, and, and so it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out over the next decade or so you know, in terms of the kinds of decisions that are handed down. Well, of course, it's because Gorsuch uh, uh, replaced Scalia, and he's not he's not nearly as um, religious, I think, as as Anton Scalia. No, or am I wrong about that? <laughs> no, I, I think that's a fair statement to make. I think it's interesting that um, is it eight to one now or nine to nothing still in terms of the number of Catholic justices? Yeah. It is in fact an overwhelmingly Catholic court, which is remarkable. Uh, that's that's really unprecedented in American history. Um, I think that Gorsuch is definitely less doctrinaire than uh, Scalia. Um, you see that in some of the decisions this year. Uh, nobody knows about Kavanaugh. I think that of the recent appointees, uh, Amy Coney Barrett is probably the most doctrinaire of the three of them. Um, but, you know, again, time will tell. Look, when they put David Souter on the court, George H.W. Bush appointed David Souter at the recommendation of his chief of staff, John Scalia. Uh, um, not John. Oh, was it? Um, sorry, Lee I just blanked. Lee Atwater? No. No, no, no. It was... Um, <laughs> John Sununu. Oh, Sununu. So John Sununu was his chief of staff, and he was in charge of vetting the nomination. And he assured H.W. Bush that Souter was a rock-ribbed New England, New Hampshire conservative. 
And then, boom, Souter gets on the court and he becomes one of the more liberal justices right. for the better part of you know 20 years. So, you know, stuff can happen. I think that the, the Federalist Society project over the last 25, 30 years has been to make sure that that never happens again. So, oh. that people, yeah, the only ones who are getting nominated now are people that they are absolutely convinced will never change their mind. Right. Which honestly is is a terrible way to do it right and uh i I've, i think so far uh i think uh trump has been disappointed in uh kavanaugh and gorsuch because they have kind of ruled against him in a couple of instances yes. and yes. so that that that's got to be a little frustrating <laughs> for him, but um tell, tell it to hw bush you know? <laughs> yeah 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 um so be, uh we are running short on time i want to talk about because and i know we've jumped all over the, the, the map here, but Cybertrap uh, for expecting moms and dads. Now, I'm thinking, uh, and maybe I'm wrong because I'm an old man, that kids aren't going to have access to uh, digital devices until at least grammar school, right? Or Am I wrong in that? Well, the average, actually a little bit wrong in that. For starters, <laughs> the average... The average age of first use of a device is 10 months. Holy crap. I'm a little yeah. bit wrong in that. I'm way wrong in that. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, whether it's an iPad or a tablet or some other thing, kids are getting their hands on these as soon as they can sit up. It's insane. Yeah. I will tell you that Cyber Traps for Expecting Moms and Dads, I'm really, I'm proud of that book because it covers a whole host of technological and privacy issues for expecting parents that I don't think get talked about enough. Right. I, I think I know where you're going with this. Now, I've been for years uh, telling people, you know, if you're going to put a baby monitor with a video camera, uh, you have to make sure you're on a VPN yes. or something, some kind of uh, firewall that's going to pr protect you because there's no, it's, if it's going out into cyberspace, bad people can access it. Well, right? it just can I just draw a big fat line underneath that and say, at the very least, <laughs> change the default password. You right. know, that's the thing. There are entire websites out there of default passwords for home devices. Right. And if you don't change your, your password and you've connected it to the Wi-Fi, boom, it's accessible to whoever has that password. Man. It, it, uh, is, it is mind blowing to me that you would put a device like that in your child's bedroom without understanding how to secure it. Right, and so, and and even in your home, generally, I mean, even if you're not a parent, there are people with all sorts of, um, you know, home surveillance systems that they don't change the default password on to, and you're you're letting criminals. Yes. In. Right. But what other? What am I missing? What what am I? What are the some of the other key things that uh, expecting parents really need to be aware of, other than that, you know, baby monitor sure. issue that occurred to me. I'll give you a couple of quick examples. One's relatively serious, um, one's kind of amusing. The first serious one is that we don't really, I think, have a definitive answer yet on the impact of Wi-Fi technology on the development of children, uh, particularly in utero or um, even after, you know, shortly after birth. There are people who are legitimately concerned that that there are some physiological risks to Wi-Fi. So, you know, among other things, not carrying your phone next to your belly when you're expecting. Holy um, moly, I didn't even think of these things. Yeah, wow. Well, that's, that's why I'm so proud of this book because I think it raises a whole bunch of fun things. Um, don't put your laptop on your belly when you're pregnant because the heat can be an issue. Uh, we have issues for guys with, um, in terms of sperm motility, and there's concern that cell phones are interfering with that, both from a heat and a Wi-Fi perspective. You know, so if you're a 20-something, the idea of carrying the phone in your front pocket, probably not the best idea if wow. you're thinking of having kids at some point. On the more amusing side of things, Matt, which I think you'll appreciate, is when you're having a kid or when you're thinking about having a kid, what role should technology play in the naming of that child? Right. So do you want a kid's name that's going to be very easy to Google so they'll really stand out in the world? Or do you want them to vanish into a haze of John Smith's 
or whatever. Um, should you reserve their Gmail account before they're born so that no one else can get it? Should you register their domain name before they're born so that when they go up, I, you know, you have fredericlane.com going on your Chiron right now. Right. There are a lot of Frederick Lanes in the world, but there's only one fredericlane.com that's available. And I have it. Congratulations. You know, <laughs> well, I've had this domain name now for 20 years because I, I know, you know, I, I do tech. But, I have you know, I have had that uh, exact struggle in my life uh, with mattnapo.com and with minddog.com. I, yeah. I had minddog.com and then I let it slip away for a while. And then I yeah. went back to get it and somebody else had it. And yeah. I, I asked him how much to buy it from him. And it got ugly, man. The guy, the guy really, uh, he ended oh, yeah. up being a stalker on me for a while. And he still well, has it, I believe. Well, uh, I'm I'm sorry to hear that, but you know, <laughs> part of the point of this book is to really get parents to think about the world in which their kids are going to grow up, and there are things that parents should be doing before the child is born to make things easier for the kid when they get older. Right. And so, uh, and we are all over time and I appreciate you hanging for an extra minute or two. Uh, sure. but you are, you live in the real world and obviously you're not a seer or a psychic. You probably do uh, being immersed in this world, have some inclination, but what, what really, you know, you're asking people to do is, is to deal with the problems that exist today. But five yes. years from now, five years, things could be, you, you who can you can't even imagine where things could be in five years from now. Right? And you can and you can only operate on the information you have available now. But you can still make some reasonable guesses. Uh, domain names are not going to go anywhere anytime soon, you know. Oh. So if you think your child may want to have one for some personal or professional reason, well, maybe it makes sense to make sure you take care of that before they're born. You know, and then, you know, hopefully I'll do a future edition of this book in three or four years and we'll deal with whatever is going on at that point. Wow. Uh, so uh, the uh, you mentioned the URL. It's fredericlane.com. Uh, that will be in the description, nice and clickable for anybody who wants to uh, visit a site and learn more about uh, Frederick. I will have, uh, I actually already have uh, in the description the link to the Amazon uh, place where you can find all his books. It's, it's just under his author page where you can find all the books that he's uh, written to date and just bookmark it because he's working on a couple more. Uh, I thank you for your time and, and insights today i could go on for hours questioning you on this stuff again i think i i've seen you on television and my biggest yeah. frustration is they don't give you long enough to talk i hope i i hope i let you uh get some information out there for far more than you're used to getting yeah. and that was my goal here today and i appreciate your time and insight and all this stuff and please come back when your next book is out to uh we'll, we'll be glad to help you promote it and let have dig further into this <laughs> well, that sounds great. And and let me thank you because you did a great job in terms of allowing this to open up. I will tell you that in a couple of months, I will have a new podcast out called the Cybertraps Podcast. I will let you know about it. and Maybe we can uh, do a little chat then. Oh, yeah. And I would definitely love to help you promote that when you're ready to do that. Please come back. I will, Matt. Thank you. Great. Uh, have a great day. And thanks for coming by for now. Okay. This episode is brought to you by Put Me in the Story. Put Me in the Story creates personalized books for kids by taking best-selling children's picture books and well-loved characters and allowing you to create personalized books that make your child the star of the story alongside their favorite characters. Save 25% store-wide when you click the link on minddogtv.com and use the code SAVE25. We're also sponsored by Lovely. Lovely is your online stop for modern, irresistible, and affordable women's clothing. Never before has dressing yourself been so easy. Lovely's carefully curated selection of apparel, accessories, and outerwear are always on trend and always available at the web's best prices. Lovely is dedicated to delivering high-quality clothing to women that will make them look and feel their best. They believe every woman has the right to dress well and shouldn't have to spend a lot to love how she looks. They make it easy to wear outfits you love every day, giving you the confidence to take on the world. Lovely.com summer fashion trends are now 40% off, starting at just $5.99. 
Get an extra 18% off when you click the link on MindDogTV.com and use the code JFT18. We're also sponsored by VaporDNA. Founded in 2013, VaporDNA is the premier online vape store offering an industry-leading selection of electronic cigarettes, e-liquids, and accessories. Their friendly and knowledgeable customer service team is always ready to provide the best customer service experience to ensure you find what you're looking for. They guarantee their products to be 100% genuine and at the lowest possible price. They're so confident in their selection and customer service, they offer their customers a 45-day refund policy. Save 20% when you click the link on MindDogTV.com and use the code ORIONQ. Frederick Lane, folks, uh, wow, a lot of uh, great information there. Again, you know, his books cover a lot. A lot about all these kinds of issues from uh, from the stuff about, you know, we've gone too far with the obscenity, but who really is the uh, who's the really arbiter of what's really obscene to uh, cyberbullying and uh, all all these kinds of issues, cybersecurity, uh, so much more. I could have asked him and would have uh, preferred to keep him here for two hours if I could. Great stuff. I hope you and I'm certain. You got some value out of this program. I hope you come back and tell your friends about it. Uh, subscribe. Go to my YouTube channel. Subscribe there. Go to MindDogTV.com and get on my mailing list. And the questions and comments for me, info at MindDogTV.com, info at MindDogTV.com. Till tonight at 8 p.m. when we're going to have a similar kind of discussion into some of the things we just talked about here. Joshua Shea, who is a uh, a former porn addict, uh, who recovered porn addict who um uh, will talk to us about the proliferation of uh pornography on the internet and how it's affected society and particularly how the covid lockdown has made things even worse uh should be a fascinating uh conversation we'll be having then at 8 p.m eastern here join me then until then i'm matt napple for the mind on tv podcast have a great rest of your day and bye for now. Can't put my finger on what she does that turns me on. Maybe it's the way she smiles. Maybe I just like her style. I just know she really rocks my world. There's something about that girl. I love the way she moves. She's so sweet and she's so smooth Love the sparkle in her eyes Baby, I'm hypnotized I just know she really rocks my world There's something about that girl And when I met her on the dance floor It only made me want her more, more, more Everything about that girl